Welcome to the Play Notes podcast, where we give you the inside scoop on the main stage productions of Portland Stage. I'm Maura O'Sullivan. And I'm Nick Cohn. And we are heading down to the fictional third smallest town in Texas, Tuna. We are going to be taking a look at our current production of A Tuna Christmas by Joe Sears, Jason Williams, and Ed Howard. We'll dive into some of the social and political issues that the play satirizes and discuss how Tuna, Texas may not be as far away from Maine as we thought. Let's go! Yay! So, A Tuna Christmas is not your typical Christmas show. No. We are taking a departure from uh, the usual Christmas Carol or It's a Wonderful Life that Mm -hmm. Portland has done before. This is... A political satire mm-hmm. at its core. As much as it's got Christmas going on around it, it is here to, you know, send a message about a lot of really serious issues. Yeah. And just uh, in case any of our listeners haven't listened to our first episode about Tuna Christmas, it is a Christmas-themed sequel to Greater Tuna, which was a political satire written during the rise of the moral majority in the conservative party in the late 1980s. In reaction to televangelist Jerry Falwell, Mm -hmm. the writers who are queer Texans, they took this on as a way to mock these people in power. Mm -hmm. And especially in the 80s, when it, the first one was written in 81, Greater Tuna. Mm -hmm. And this one, Tuna Christmas, is from 89. So within that span of time, there was a lot happening politically. Um, The Reagan administration, the AIDS epidemic. So they had a lot to say, and Mm. they said it through comedy. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting to look at the way that someone used satire to express political frustration 33 years ago, as opposed to how we see that same satire today. Satire plays an interesting role in our culture today, with increasing conversations about systems of inequality and who has the right to tell which stories or make which jokes. And political and social divisions have come to what some may consider a fever pitch, the fine line between effective satire and satire that goes too far, getting thinner and harder to anticipate. Yeah, I feel like this is something that we've all become very aware of, Mm -hmm. especially since 2016. What is funny? What is too far? Mm -hmm what is cathartic and what is hurtful and that line is constantly changing i feel like pre even pre 2000 like five comedy quote unquote a lot of the joke was just kind of saying a racist thing or doing something uh morally bankrupt and positioning it in a sort of narrative framework that makes it obvious to the viewer or if you are understanding the narrative framework obvious to the viewer that this is supposed to be bad right but I feel like now, in 2022, 23, that's not enough. Because if you show something racist happening, even if it is supposed to be, in the writer's mind, funny, there is a difference between the intention and the impact of satire. Yeah, yeah. Taking into consideration how it is received. Your audience is the deciding factor. Yeah. And audiences change and grow and it is really interesting to see this play written in 89 performed in 22 you know Mm -hmm. it's it's a different political landscape a lot of the same issues yeah which is you know sort of terrifying that they're exactly the same problems that we're dealing with now but it's important to make sure that the audience is aware of the framing of the fact that it's satire I think a lot of the satire that we experience now is on TV. We have SNL, which famously does political opening sketches, Mm -hmm. especially 
during the election season. Yeah. And we have late night hosts. We have a lot of content being churned out in the comedy world about really serious, heavy things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they land and sometimes they don't. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even have to work that hard to make something seem absurd because I feel like we've gotten really absurd. Yeah. A lot of the goals of the current alt-right are borderline fantasy that they've created for themselves and then are using to enact their agenda upon innocent people. Yes, exactly. Reality right now is like scarily cinematic mm -hmm. in, its, in, in what's happening. Yeah. There's a great quote by a comedy writer. He's written for SNL and Jimmy Kimmel. But he said, I could write jokes for 800 years and I'd never think of something funnier than Trump booking the Four Seasons for his big comeback presser <laughs> and it turning out to be the Four Seasons total landscaping <laughs> parking lot between a sex store and a crematorium. And it's true. You know, that is yeah. so absurd. And yet that really happened. And, you know, if that was a joke in a play, I would buy it. Yeah. And you don't even have to write anything around that. That's the joke itself. It's almost too easy. And I think that part of why there are now criticisms of satires like Tuna Christmas is because reality has become so divorced from reality that to simply say or do a racist thing and expect an audience to laugh at it is no longer effective satire. Because at, that, at this point, it feels almost like endorsement. It's an easy gateway to glorifying something. Mm -hmm if you don't have enough commentary on it. To, to misidentify satire as just sort of a slice of life is easy sometimes. And dangerous. And super dangerous. But that is the, that's the line that we have to walk when we're performing plays like this. It's not going to be the same as it was when it came out, inherently. But no play is. You know, we, we look at classics from back to Shakespeare, back to Arthur Miller. Yep. We look at them now when we produce them in a different lens. And yeah. it is just an, a unique thing to look at such a broad comedy in the same lens that we do some of those classics. Yeah. We actually had a talk back with an audience the other day for our artistic perspective series mm -hmm. that we do here yeah and anita stewart our artistic director moderated it and something that we talked about was the place that this play holds within the queer canon we had a professor of queer studies from bates college come in and talk about the history of it and it's really interesting because i hadn't fully contextualized it in the same way that she did and just looking at the impact of the kinds of comedy and the kinds of art that was happening on the coasts at the time either mm -hmm. in san francisco or new york compared to by the time it got to somewhere like austin texas where this was written mm -hmm. this was sort of the first time something like this had been done there and in that community and it was written by openly gay writers and performers mm -hmm. And, you know, they're playing with gender. They're playing with identity. And it was really interesting. She made some great points about how it, how it fits into the history of that. And it is a different landscape now, but it does hold an important spot. And I think that's, that's good to remember. I think it's really easy for conservatives in Texas to feel isolated and secure in what they feel is like a bastion of conservative beliefs, especially in the 1980s. And to feel divorced from, to feel divorced from the, the problems of the coasts, but then to have openly gay Texans say, no, we're here and we see you 
mm-hmm. and you look like clowns to us. And like we are just as much of Texan as you are, but you can't get away from us because we're people and we're everywhere. <laughs> and like your beliefs make you look so silly. And no one was really doing that before. I also think it's interesting to know that uh, the tuna plays were brought to the White House. Yeah, With yeah. Bush Sr. And it's so wild because as much as it's a Republican president from Texas, mm-hmm. seeing something in it that he recognizes, I just think that's such a wild... I would never assume that they would like this material necessarily. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, they saw themselves in it and could see maybe some of these issues in a new light. I don't know. I think it's really interesting. One would hope that the satire was effective on the the president and his staff. But that also speaks to a uniquely American conservative ability to see someone satirizing them and go, ha ha ha, what a good joke. Anyways, that's not about me or my beliefs. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, And how do you know? How Mm -hmm. do you know who's seeing your work and how they're interpreting it? Mm -hmm. You sort of don't have any control over what someone takes from the piece. All you can do is is create it how you think you should create it. Yeah. As soon as it's written, it's only the audience's ability to understand the satire that matters after that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. So something that is a running gag in A Tuna Christmas is the fact that there is an organization called the Smut Snatchers of the New Order, run by a couple of the characters, specifically Vera Karp is the impromptu leader of it, and one of the other uh, cast members, Bertha Bumiller, are members of this organization. And we thought we'd talk a little bit about... The ideas in the play about smut snatching, quote unquote, but more specifically book banning, sort of then and now. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, Maura? Well, there is a line from Bertha who does say that censorship is as American as apple pie. Mm. So shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, unfortunately, there is a long history of trying to tamp down free speech in this country. As much as it's a joke that this is a group that exists in this fictional town, there are so many groups like this, uh, which I really didn't realize until we started to research it. Yeah. Back in the 1980s, when A Tuna Christmas was written, the authors were satirizing organizations like the the moral majority. Jerry Falwell led a major book banning push in the 80s. And specifically in Texas, these books were from anything from school textbooks that spoke about evolution to literature that had strong language or contained sexual content centered on race or challenged long-standing narratives about American history. And Falwell claimed these bans were to protect children from immoral themes and, quote, anti-Christian ideals. There's so much wrong with that. Yep, just (laughs) on base level. It really is scary to see that so much of that actually gets through mm-hmm. and actually happens. Yeah. And these aren't just people screaming into the void that we should censor what children are allowed to learn about. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time. And it happens all the time now. So that was in the 80s. But in 2022, there was a report that 32 states had instances of book banning. And Texas leads the nation with 800 plus titles across 22 school district just in the last year 
And most of the books that were banned were all centered on racism or LGBTQ plus themes. And that is really scary. I grew up in Texas. I moved there in 2006 when I was seven years old. And I went through the Texas public school system. And one memory that really stuck out to me still to this day was when I was in health class, we received a textbook and there was a page long paragraph describing the importance of abstinence and tucked in the bottom corner of the same page was maybe six sentences about the dangers of lung cancer caused by smoking. Wow. Yeah. So they spent an entire page describing how abstinence is the only way to prevent STDs or unplanned pregnancy and barely spent any resources describing something that is a scientifically proven danger coming from nicotine addiction and smoking of cigarettes. And even as a middle schooler, that stuck out to me as something wrong. And it yeah. made me question why the sort of on high authority of, of Texas public education decided that this was what we should spend more time on and this was not. And it was ludicrous. It's, it's really interesting to me that we have somehow in the last 50 years, and it's always been there, but yeah. I just feel like since, since this play was written, you've really seen how much the religion has just completely it's like insidious mm -hmm. and these ideas of anti-christian ideals mm -hmm. and premarital sex and anything that they decide doesn't go with their beliefs yeah. they're going to put on everyone that yeah. goes through that system and people can believe that what they want to believe but there has to be some kind of basis of fact that's available and as much as we can say that this happens in Texas, and wow, that's nowhere near us. That's yeah. not like us. <laughs> it happens all over, and yeah. it happens in Maine, too. In the past few months, multiple Maine school boards have had contentious debates with the community over books that parents want to have banned. These books in question? Gender Queer, a memoir by Maya Kobabe, and Beyond Magenta, Transgender Teens Speak Out by Susan Kuklin. This August, Gender Queer was removed from the library of Dorigo High School in Dixiefield by a school board vote of 7-2, while Bonnie Eagle School Board in Standish voted not to ban it just this October. Meanwhile, the Woolwich Central School Library in Woolwich has a parent trying to appeal the decision to keep Beyond Magenta on the shelves last month, November. Honestly, I grew up being a big book nerd. Mm -hmm. I loved the library. It was my safe space. Yeah. And those are such formative years. Mm -hmm. And it's so unfortunate to hear that such important narratives mm -hmm. are just being taken out of the building entirely. Yeah. Erased. Yeah. Erased, exactly. And that's only going to cause more problems and it's it's not gonna let people learn about themselves learn about others so so it is a really big issue and i think as much as we make fun of it in this show it rings very true it rings very true and it's a dangerous current hot button issue even yes. now uh something that i think is interesting just to to leave you all with so you don't feel completely hopeless mm -hmm. <laughs> which it is so easy to now yeah in the face of such evil. So something that you can do, the American Library Association advises that in order to prevent book banning in your area, you should stay informed 
and if you hear of a challenge at your local library, support your librarian and find out what your library's policy is for reviewing challenged materials. Other actions that you can do to engage with your community, if a school board is challenging a book or parents are challenging books, write letters to the local editor of your newspaper, your public library director, your school principal, and support the freedom to read. Talk to your friends about why everyone should be allowed to choose for themselves mm -hmm. and their families what they read. Um, these seem small, but just having another voice in the room is so important. Finding a narrative that might affirm your identity as a young student can potentially be life-saving. Exactly. So you don't have to read what you don't want to read, but you don't get to choose for everyone else. Exactly. Thank you, Maura. <laughs> That's my platform. I'll be running for a local office at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, keep your eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> keep your eyes peeled for my signs. <laughs> local, local podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> From podcaster to politician. Mm, it's more likely than you think. <laughs> got family coming to town it's not too late to get in on the fun at portland stage this season with our flex pass subscription looking to catch the rest of the season but you don't want to commit to the same date every run sold in four to six ticket packs a flex pass can be used for admission to each of our remaining four shows or can be used all on one show or mix and match to your heart's content visit portlandstage.org subscriptions to get your flex pass today a perfect gift for every holiday that's portlandstage.org slash subscriptions, or click the link in our show notes. All right, we're going to talk about the Sinclair Broadcasting Group. We sure are. Now, if you've seen Tuna, you know that we open the whole show at the radio station in town that is hosted by two locals. Mm -hmm. And the entire scene is them giving news stories about the town, about its inhabitants, which are all you know, intentionally uninformative yep. and also call into question so many of the larger issues that are happening in this tiny little bubble. Mm -hmm. While in some ways local news, like the one shown in Tuna, can promote unity and closeness in a town, it can also be a way to normalize and amplify the community's values, as we see in Tuna. This is the echo chamber phenomenon in which one listens to a small group of people who share their views, making it seem like those opinions are held by the majority. This can have a dangerous effect on those who listen to one news source alone. So in Tuna, we see every character, I think almost every character, listening to the radio, listening to these hosts mm -hmm. who are local celebrities. They are trusted sources. Mm -hmm. They are talking straight to their community about their community. Mm -hmm. And this is the central point from which all of the other stories in the play stem from. And this echo chamber phenomenon is happening right there in Tuna. When you only hear one side of the story constantly, then you assume that everyone is hearing that. And that can be really dangerous. And we have seen this specifically in recent years since the 2016 election, uh, thanks to the second largest television station operator, Sinclair. Now, Sinclair has been around since the 1970s. They currently own and operate 193 local news stations. These are mostly concentrated in the South and the Midwest and have strong ties to national networks like Fox, ABC, and CBS. Sinclair is decidedly right-leaning, 
and controversially has let their political beliefs impact their programming choices. So we have seen the impact of this company during Trump's presidency. They came under fire for a lot of their programming decisions. One thing was that they were promoting segments in which they were discouraging their audience from trusting in or engaging with other news outlets. And they were saying that these outlets didn't fact check their stories and they threatened democracy. And this was completely untrue and also incredibly insidious. They were using their local anchors who the audiences trust and they feel attached to and broadcasting falsities yeah. and making them tune out all other possible sources. It's a similar kind of recruitment tactic that you see in, in cults where someone might be in the process of being inducted into a cult and a member or leader of the group continually insists that the only place where they're going to feel accepted or trusted is with that group. And so in so doing, separates them from family members, friends, established networks of social connection in order to isolate them and make them more susceptible to whatever agenda is about to be placed upon them. Yeah, and that isolation is a complete control tactic. Mm -hmm. And this company is so deeply connected to, to the right that they used this to their advantage. The broadcasting group continues to try and misinform audiences and sway their political leanings with cherry-picked news stories and narratives. A study from political scientists Gregory Martin and Josh McCrane shows that local stations that have been bought by Sinclair rapidly changed their focus from local news to national news, covering the news with a more conservative take. With Sinclair's wide reach and the number of Americans who rely on TV stations as their main source of news, which is about 68%, according to the Pew Research Center, this biased reporting has damaging effects. Sinclair creates a skewed perception of reality and majority opinion for its viewers, taking advantage of the presumed credibility of news to mislead them. So while in the play we don't see this purposeful scheme, really, mm -hmm. we do see how important local news is and how easy it is for their listeners to be made vulnerable. We have a bunch of situations in the play where someone calls into the radio station and in doing so has almost unchecked access to the entirety of the town. We see this in the scene where Dee Dee Snavely, the owner of the used weapons store, calls the radio station and outs the man broadcasting Leonard as cheating on his wife. And within seconds in the script, Leonard's wife is quote unquote seen driving down Main Street of the town to go and find him and attack him. <laughs> um, yeah. And that is done with a single phone call to what is basically a information network that everyone in the town is listening to all the time. We also see, and, and it's a great little joke, but it's very real, um, <laughs> in the opening scene, Thurston can't find the farm report, mm -hmm. which is all about, you know, the local... Prices on meat. Thank you. And he can't find it, so he goes, well, I hate it when I have to make it up. And that is terrifying. Yeah. No news should just be made up out of inconvenience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And we see that the, the radio station, in one of the more racist jokes uh, in that opening scene, they have a report from their, quote, world news desk, where they're describing events occurring in an unnamed country because they, they can't figure out how to pronounce the name of the country, so they scrap the story. 
Yeah, they say, well, must be far away, never mind. Yep, must be foreigners, so never mind. Which, in an echo chamber, if that is the only opinion that is being given to their listening base, everyone will eventually assume, over the course of time, that news about people that aren't them doesn't matter. Yes. And we've seen that applied in the, the Sinclair audience base as well. So something to take away from this is, you know, what can you do? This is going to be our theme for the episode. Our theme for the episode. Things that you can do to feel less hopeless. Yeah. And so, according to the founding director of the International Fact-Checking Network, there are a few easy, low-effort things that you can do to feel more confident that you are consuming news critically. She says that you should find multiple reputable sources for a story. Make sure there are quotes from individuals with appropriate experience or credentials to weigh in. And they also recommend to find the About Us or the staffing page of the news distributor website to see who is in leadership and what outside ties they may have. Yep. I think that that's something really interesting to remember. You know, some people have very specific personal interests and that can sometimes bleed into affecting you and the information you're given. So I think all of that is very doable, but you have to be very purposeful about it. Yeah. And you should listen to us because we're podcasters. So we know what we're talking about. We're a credible source. (laughs) We're Um, definitely a credible source. So if you want to know more about us, reach out. out. (laughs) Text us. (laughs) my number is stay tuned for our social (laughs) (laughs) yep one of the most impressive things about a tuna christmas is the ability for our two actors Mm -hmm. to portray 22 characters Mm -hmm. in total we have nathaniel and tom who are playing 11 characters each and these characters keep coming back yep So you, Nick, are actually backstage during the show helping with all of their costume changes. Mm -hmm. It is the most insane thing I've ever seen in the theater. (laughs) How many times do they change into different outfits? In total, we have, let me just get the, the exact number here for you. We have 39 costume changes in this show over the course of two hours. Operated by myself and one other member of the wardrobe crew and the actors themselves. It is a feat of technical prowess. They Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was watching all during rehearsal when we started working with the costumes and seeing how specifically you all can choreograph each change into each character. Mm-hmm. You have it down to seconds. Yeah. It's before you even realize that a character has exited the stage, that a new one is coming on. And each one of them has a different personality, different physicality. They walk different. They talk different. And they are fully outfitted to the truth of that character. Yep. And so something that we really had to think about in the process of creating this show is how gender and performance intertwine. Because these two male-identifying actors are playing multiple genders and uh, different ages, different beliefs, different entirely different people. And so how does that all come together in a way that feels authentic? Yeah. Tom Ford commented in his interview in this edition of Play Notes that, quote, I've always thought it's fun how I get to explore my feminine side, to explore my masculine side. I just get to live in all these different heads and attempt to be truthful to all of them. 
And playing with gender performance like that in theater has been around for centuries, leading to valuable commentary on gender roles and the development of art forms such as drag. Yes, I am a huge RuPaul fan. Mm -hmm. I love RuPaul's Drag Race. And it really has been interesting to see the similarities and also the differences of, of what we're doing here, playing with it, and how our culture has become even more aware of this art form yeah. recently. It's an incredible balancing act to portray a person that is a different gender than you and to not do it in a way that is disrespectful. I think that that is one of the things that I've noticed about drag as an art form in mainstream culture and in my own personal experience when I actually did a couple of drag performances in college. I wish I was there. <laughs> it was great. I'll show you a video of it if I can find it. <laughs> um, but one of the greatest things about it in discussions with my friends that were also performing and to do it myself was the exuberance and joy that is found in honestly and respectfully embodying someone who is different and to take that and blow it to extremes. It's, it's euphoria to explore someone who is different from you and to do it in a way that is, that gives you like a whole new tool set for how you interact with the world. And we see that in the performances that our actors give, the way that they hold themselves, the way that they talk, the way that they interact with each other as men is different from the way that they talk and hold themselves and interact with each other as women. Yeah, something that we discussed in rehearsal, we had a female identifying director and myself as well. And I think it was important to have different voices in the room as we were exploring playing with gender. And something that we really talked about was how to make sure we're not showing a stereotype of any of any of these characters, right? But also specifically um, when these male actors were taking on the physicality, making sure that it's authentic mm -hmm. and not their idea of what a woman is. Yeah. And not this, and, and we are programmed, right? There are certain stereotypes that we don't even realize we're holding, but making sure like to not have um, an offensive take on on how women's bodies move mm -hmm. or how women's voices sound mm -hmm. and I think that it was really clear that these performers had such respect and such care for the work and they wanted to as Tom says play the character to its to his best ability for the truth of it especially Bertha. Bertha is our, I would say, the center of our play mm -hmm. and really holds so much of the heart of the piece together as mm -hmm. much as it's crazy and wacky and whatever around her. Like, she has a lot of grounded moments. And I think Tom knew that in order for those to land, he had to really play a real woman, a real mother of three, a real wife of a cheating, terrible husband. There's a lot to her, and he wanted to do it with respect. And that comes across in the way that he carries himself in that costume. Um, when we change him into Bertha, he shows a lot of care in getting ready before he goes on stage. We, Like you said, we have seconds. But Tom takes time out of his change to look at himself in the mirror and adjust after we get him into that costume. Because it feels like he has a great deal of respect for showing the audience this woman. He doesn't want to come off like a male-presenting actor in a rumpled shirt and an off-kilter wig. He, right. wants to, he wants to come on as Bertha, as this woman might be. 
And something that Julia, the director, and I discussed was how in a... <laughs> In a worse version of this play, with people who care far less, the joke could be simply, haha, a guy in a dress. Yep. And I'm sure that those productions have existed over the years, mm. and I'm sure that certain communities, you know, respond to that. But that's not okay, and it's not what we were doing here. And so we really wanted to make sure that you're you're laughing because you see Bertha doing something in her character that mm. is funny. Not like, ha-ha, there's Tom Ford who was just wearing pants and now he has a skirt. Um, and I think that that distinction has been really specific in the work. Mm -hmm. And in the world of Tuna Christmas, you might wonder, is this play an example of drag and art form, or is it just cross-gendered casting? Right, and those are two very different things, but mm -hmm. they're all sort of in this world of playing with gender. When Joe Sears and Jason Williams toured the country with the tuna plays, they often referred to it as drag when they were talking about their over-exaggerated performances of women like Vera Karp. Quote, It's still amazing to me that two men dressed mostly in drag could have such an effect on audiences, end quote, said Sears to Texas Monthly. And one can assume that speaking to Texas Monthly, those audiences he was referring to were audiences of Texans in the mid to late 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, but this could also be an example of cross-gender casting because in this one we have two male identifying actors, mm -hmm. but they have also done this production with women yeah. taking on all these roles. Yeah. And so that, that can be really empowering to play a variety of complex characters and identities and play them truthfully, whoever the performer is. I think that our culture is finally having a lot of discussions about gender that are overdue and mm -hmm. very important. And being able to break out of the stereotypes that we've been programmed to acknowledge is a big deal. And so it's really cool to see us take something that back in the day when it came out could have been perceived very differently and could mm -hmm. have been directed very differently mm -hmm. and performed very differently. Yeah. And it goes with this whole idea we've been talking about of like the lens of seeing this in 2022. Mm -hmm. Our approach had to be different because we understand gender different now than we did then. Through the contemporary lens that we're viewing this play mm -hmm. now, what is still true is that just the act of playing all these different genders and all these different characters mm -hmm. then and now, the act itself is a form of protest. And it's doing something that a lot of people aren't going to like yeah. or agree with. And that is powerful. Especially right now when there is an onrushing wave, it seems like, of reactionary violence against trans spaces and spaces that welcome exploring gender through different lenses like drag clubs or drag shows. That to do so in our play in an honest way, even though it is a comedy, even though it is a satire of American conservatism, to still have such complex gender play is going to, maybe for someone in the audience, they might see it and think, yeah, like, this is a person, I've seen them as a as someone who is male presenting, and now I see them as someone who is female presenting. And they might think that their personal identity can or should change like that, that there is room for growth and exploration like that. And those thoughts are being met with actual violence right now. And I think that it is important in a way for us to have it on our stage to show that it is not only okay, but it is beautiful and complex and something that should be explored and viewed all the time. 
Right. I think that's really a powerful thing and, and something that Portland Stages has the opportunity to do. It has a platform. It mm-hmm. has a literal stage mm-hmm. to put people on in front of others that mm-hmm. may not have experienced this before. And that's really cool. Yeah. While it might not be a drag show, it is a show that has drag in it. So Yeah. And maybe you go check out your local drag scene. Please find your local drag scene. Get to know the drag queens. They're some of the funniest people that I've ever met. Incredibly charming, incredibly mm-hmm. entertaining, and uh, really doing interesting interesting art. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm happy to see that we're starting to really highlight that. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Play Notes. As always, you can find a print version of the articles you've heard here on our website, portlandstage.org slash playnotes. Tickets for A Tuna Christmas are on sale now, so contact our box office by calling 207-774-0465 or buy them directly through our website. The show runs from November 30th to December 24th. And if you like the podcast, why not subscribe and leave us a review? Thanks for hanging out with us and join us in January for our next show, a world premiere of Sweet Goats and Blueberry Senoritas by Maine's own Richard Blanco and Vanessa Garcia. So exciting. This edition's articles were written by Audrey Erickson, Nick Hone, Maura O'Sullivan, and Rachel Rapella. And this episode was produced by Maura O'Sullivan and Nick Hone.